Hello, and welcome to another episode of From the Market Square, presented by Sheehan Finney. I'm your host, Paul Durham. Our firm has been around long enough that we can say, without exaggeration, that generations of lawyers have passed through our doors. But one core value of our firm that has been ingrained since the beginning is this, the importance of active involvement by our lawyers in the local communities where we live and work, whether that's Boston, Manchester, the Upper Valley, or right here in Portsmouth. For that reason, in addition to entrepreneurs and business owners, I always look forward to speaking with community leaders from around the seacoast. Today's guest is Craig Welch, Executive Director of the Portsmouth Housing Authority. The mission of the PHA is to be the leader in making quality, affordable housing available for low and moderate income members of the community. I asked Craig to talk about the importance of affordable housing to Greater Portsmouth and the potential positive impact of the new Court Street project. My favorite part of the interview was when we expanded the scope of our discussion beyond just Portsmouth matters, and Craig elaborated a bit more on subjects that are of particular interest to us both. The effects of poverty and toxic stress on early childhood development, and what little things we can all do to make a positive difference in a young person's life. If you've heard Craig's recent TED Talk, you know that he's an engaging speaker, and this interview didn't disappoint. With all that said, here's Craig Welch. Craig, thanks for uh, thanks for joining me today uh, in your office. I appreciate you being part of the podcast. Yeah, thanks. Thanks very much for having me. You obviously have a history with the firm. The good thing about I think me is that you know your work is outside my area of expertise. Mm-hmm. I've already learned a lot just sitting here for ten or fifteen minutes chatting with you. Yeah. So great. You know, if if you could, could you you know just generally talk a little bit about you know your role at, as the executive director here at the PHA mm-hmm. as well as the PHA's role in the community and, sure. and what it does. Um, well, I've been here eight and a half years. Um, and uh, really love my job. I mean, it's just uh, wonderful to have an opportunity to do a job like this in the community that I live in. You know, we, PHA owns 11 properties throughout the city, 605 apartments, rental apartments that are under management, you know, house almost 1,000 people, but 240 kids right now, 290 senior citizens, lots of people with, with disabilities. And so it's a real gift to be able to, you know, touch these people's lives in a positive way when we can. And these kids go to school with my kids. It's just great to be a part of the community. So we're, you know, in one sense, we're landlords. We've got about a $100 million real estate portfolio here in the city. And we're the largest housing authority per capita in the state. Part of that's because we're a small city of 22,000 people, you know, 11,000 households. So uh, when you're 600 of those, that, that's a big chunk of that. All of our housing is, uh, is subsidized. Uh, so we really provide housing for people that don't not exclusively, but that don't often have a lot of other choices. And, you know, because we've done so well at developing housing like that, that, you know, really Portsmouth has done a great job at, you know, providing opportunities for people, for the lowest income people in our community to still be a part of our community, which I think is, is really important and admirable for this community. So what we're paid to do and what we're you know, here to do is to manage that property, but we do a whole lot more than that because we deal with a pretty vulnerable population in many cases, you know, some really wonderful people that have all kinds of different goals to grow and improve and take care of their kids or to, you know, just live comfortably and and safely and in retirement. And so we have a resident services program and we really, all of our property managers and all of our staff are really focused on not just the mission of providing safe and clean and permanently affordable housing, but also doing what we can to help improve the quality of people's lives at the same time. What kind of challenges arise when that mission 
and the role of being a landlord. Does that collide the administrative side with the mission sometimes? Or? It sure does. Yeah. You know, it sure yeah. can. You know, sometimes, you know, we really do whatever we can, for instance, to keep people housed. But sometimes um, we also have to, you know, protect the whole community. And so the last thing we like to do that we want to do and feel like we've failed if it does happen is evict people. Because if you get evicted from public housing, a lot of times, uh, you don't have any other choices, and uh, but we do do that. You know, in the end, all of the resident services that we can provide, all of the, you know, connections to uh, substance abuse services, recovery services, or you know, job programs or healthcare programs or whatever, we can make those connections and do the best we can. But but if people, um, you know, just you know, successfully live in a building with 150 other people or you know, 120 other families, then, uh, you know, when the rent is very low, it's subsidized, but you still need to pay the rent. We have right. an obligation to the taxpayers right. uh, to do that. So, uh, you know, so that's an example where we want to really give people grace and give people the opportunity to stay housed. But at the same time, as a landlord, you know, sometimes an eviction is the last tool and the only tool that we have. We sure don't like to do it. We no, try to pull out all yeah. the stops. Yeah. Right. Staying on the topic of the mission, you know, in your words, why is you know affordable housing? You know, in some ways, maybe the question is obvious, but I, why is it so important to you know the community at large? Why is it important to the business community to have uh, affordable housing? Yeah, no, I think it's really important to the business community. I also I also think it's really important to the culture of our community. I think diversity has always been what makes Portsmouth really special. It's the texture of the the people that we have here and the variety of socioeconomic and, and job opportunities. We have a really diverse economy in that way. But you know, you're, when you start losing your housing diversity, because we've really added a ton of housing um, in Portsmouth over the last several years. It's not like we've not grown the housing supply, but pretty much all of the housing supply has been added for more affluent people in our community. And you know, Portsmouth is a is a huge draw here because of our world-class hospitality industry, the restaurants, all of the you know, historic preservation that goes on and all the nonprofits that are here in the city, cultural institutions and all of the musicians, all of the artists, everybody who works in, in uh, the theaters, you know, all the techs, all the actors, choreographers, all of those people really you know, have a lot of texture and, and make Portsmouth a, a special place and a place that people really want to come to, and increasingly so, they can't live here. So when all of those people who, are, who have chosen to be in jobs because that's where their spirit has brought them, that's really, it's more of a mission or it's more of a calling in a lot of these cases when they can't afford to live in the community anymore, then Portsmouth starts to change and it, and it has changed. So I think just for the business community, maintaining a really diverse economy is important to retaining employees in the community and not just the people in the service industry because job mobility in location really matters too. So not just a place where you can move to, but a place where you can get started and grow here and have some more um, opportunities as you grow, I think is really important. You know, we just, uh, for better or worse, as you know, we, we built a $25 million parking garage in Portsmouth. As our hospitality industry has grown and we've added a lot of hotels and that kind of stuff. And so we end up building space for 600 cars and that should not be our affordable housing strategy is to, to make more parking available so that people who live north of here 
can drive into the city to work in the hotels and have to have a place to park their car here. If we had had $25 million to leverage tax credits and financing, uh, we could have built a whole lot of housing so that all of those people wouldn't have to drive here to begin with. Uh, if you have a diverse housing supply, which to me, you know, nonprofit ownership is really, and us as a local nonprofit housing developer, we don't need to, you know, we don't need to make a profit. So when we build something, it's permanently affordable and we keep it that way for, you know, generations. I mean, that's what we've done so far. So I think it's important to the business community, not just because it makes Portsmouth really special, but also because a lot of, uh, talk to a lot of restaurants, we have 11 restaurants that have actually invested in buying community development tax credits to invest in this property. Yeah. And you can see why, you know, that would be uh, just from a lifestyle standpoint, you know, an employment standpoint, it would be awesome in a walkable urban community like this right. to live in a place where you don't need a car. And that's what we're really trying to create. Yeah, and how does the, uh, the the most recent project? I think that maybe a lot of us have heard about is the Court Street um, right. project. So how does that fit in with what you're talking about, like affordable housing for the workforce and things mm -hmm. like that? What, you know, what do you see the uh, impact of, of Court Street as far as the greater goal goes? Yeah, a lot of kind of what I said in terms of the the employees being able to stay here, because you know while Portsmouth Housing Authority provides you know 600 units of housing for mostly very low income people, it's the people who aren't very low income, they still, they still don't make enough money to be able to afford the high housing costs here. So this product that we're, we're developing right now is a little different from the rest of our portfolio because there is no deep subsidy that the residents will have in order to pay a portion of their rent. So while the rents are going to be below market and trailing the market and affordable and hopefully more affordable over time, um, they'll still have to pay the rent, you know. And so, so this is why this is more workforce housing because you're going to need, need some more income than the 80% of the people that live with us now are under, are considered extremely low income by HUD standards and make 30% or less of the area median income. So that's why we're developing it here. And I think Portsmouth and any community that it's you know, to meet sustainability goals. You know, we can talk about climate change and sustainability too. If, because you know, when we were developing the project, we asked for some relief from the parking requirements. And people would say, well, all these people are gonna live there. They're gonna, they're gonna need a place to park. And my argument is no, we have a long history of telling low-income people, you know, what they need in this country, but, but they don't need a place to park. What they need is an opportunity to live in a place where they don't need a car. And you're walkable here by building something in a walkable urban community in the middle of a, a downtown like this. You're providing exactly that. You're providing an opportunity to live without a car. There's also public transportation right at the front steps of this that also services the area. And that is what I hear from people all the time is that that's what they would like, especially uh, younger folks like my 21 year old daughter. She'd rather live in a city where she doesn't have to own a car and incur those expenses. You know, transportation and, and housing are so linked because there's costs on both sides. And so if, uh, some of the best cities I've ever been in are most, the most pedestrian sure. friendly sure. places. Absolutely. You know, I mean, Absolutely. especially if you travel in Europe and some of the really, really old cities, they weren't built around automobiles and parking. Right. You know, they were built before that time and they're incredible uh, places, you know. And so you know, if you have zoning and other requirements that uh, are parking minimum requirements, then you're really incentivizing 
um, people to drive cars into the middle of the city. That's counter to good urban planning right now. You know, and you're, you're by providing free parking, and I know there's a place for that too, understand, but you know, we're not in the, in the parking subsidy business. We don't subsidize parking, we subsidize housing. Mm -hmm. And we don't wanna be in a position where you're providing free subsidized parking, which is encouraging, to me is encouraging car ownership. And there's all kinds of benefits of, you know, of not having cars and not burning fossil fuels and being able to walk places. So yeah, and, and there's thousands of jobs within walking distance here. You know, the middle school's right next door. It's right next, it's 15 feet away from the central fire department. All entry-level police officers, all uh, entry-level teachers, all entry-level firefighters, they'll all be able to qualify to live here. Mm -hmm. And how great would that be? Yeah. You want, you know, you want your, your first responders to be part of the um, part of the community. Be part of the community, like, yeah. right? Yeah. Right. So yes, a lot of reasons why we think you know it's the right thing to do for Portsmouth, but that also this location is really important. And I think any community like us in the country would really kill for something like this. I mean, it's really great. Yeah, you know, I'm with the, the idea of having a walkable, vibrant downtown wherever you may live. Mm -hmm. Right. It's such, a, and especially for you know for for young people and you know attracting a, you know a younger workforce or you know. You know, young intellectual capital to bring other people in, the ability to, to live and work downtown in a place, I think that's appealing for a lot of, you know, a lot of folks. Right. It certainly was for me when I was, you know, right. when, I, right. when I was younger. Yeah, it was for me too, exactly. <laughs> Just a little bit about you. I mean, how did you, you know, this isn't your first, uh, your, your first stop in your successful career. What's your professional background? How did you find your way to Portsmouth Housing Authority in this role? And yeah, that's a good question. I mean, I thought I was gonna be in education, not in housing, when, because I liked coaching and I liked teaching. I was actually a part of the inaugural class of the AmeriCorps National Service Program. Uh, that was created by uh, President Clinton. And I was in that first class, first 25,000 of us, kind of starry-eyed idealists <laughs> back then. And it felt like a big deal back then, but I, over time I realized how uh, formative that was and what a great thing it is for young people to have an opportunity to do direct service, to be in direct service with people and really be working in the trenches uh, alongside people in need or you know, or in the environment or in education or anything like that was a big part of uh, what I did. You know, I ended up working for then Governor Shaheen in her first campaign for governor and, and then on her staff and also got a lot of experience in, in the same kind of thing, doing constituent services. You field a lot of questions and try to solve a lot of problems for people. You know, and then eventually um, I ended up in the real estate business, which I really didn't like being in the real estate business, but boy, that experience now uh, having been in commercial real estate and been developing, helping people develop properties has proven really valuable to what we're doing right now. So there was, I guess, a purpose behind that. And then I worked for a fantastic organization uh, in Concord called the New Hampshire Community Loan Fund. Community Loan Fund is, is uh, what they call a community development financial institution. It's a bank, essentially. And so I ran um, about two-thirds of their investment portfolio was in housing. And a lot of manufactured housing parks, I actually worked in helping homeowners who lived in a privately owned park um, actually purchase their park and turn it into a cooperatively owned park. All kinds of benefits to doing that. But, uh, but that was great, too, because we could work, you know, working directly with folks on something really life-changing and then also being a part of, you know, what were a lot of multi-million dollar real estate transactions and operations. So there's a lot of business component to that too. But that was great. I, my, uh, my old boss, Julie Eads, is one of my heroes. She just did 
such a terrific job and really was making change by changing the marketplace, you know, not just by being one of these organizations that just asks for more money all the time. They were really changing how markets worked with single family finance and these uh, manufactured housing um, park transactions. But of course, that was in Concord and I lived in Portsmouth and with four kids here, um, my wife's a you know successful entrepreneur, and you know what it's like to, to you know be running around like that. So working an hour away, and my wife was working in Boston, wasn't sustainable over the long term. And when the you know an opportunity came to be the director of the Housing Finance Authority, which is a a four minute bike ride <laughs> from where we are <laughs> from my house uh, right now, and I can look into my kids' middle school classroom right oh, from my you can see, office. See what they're up to, make sure they're, yeah, 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 make sure they're in mean, class. It's just been, it's been really great. So I've been psyched to have had this opportunity and to be a part of a great, you know, great organization, 60-year-old organization, and modernize it and grow it, and it's been really fun. Yeah, terrific. You know, one other question, at least for me, I think I saved what I find to be the most interesting, mm-hmm. maybe for maybe for last year. Uh, yeah, I, I, hopefully, folks who are listening have heard your Portsmouth TEDx talk. If they haven't, I'd encourage them to go and, and listen to it. I really enjoyed it because in my not-so-secret alter ego, I, I've had the opportunity to work with kids and get out to schools and speak with them and things like that. The focus of your talk, it really was about toxic stress, mm-hmm. its effects on long-term effects on children, how that contributes to, to poverty and how poverty can, can really have a, such a long-term developmental you know, detriment. So many children who are raised in that environment can you know, they're just starting out a, a step behind before they even get to school. Right. Everyone should go out and listen to that. Thank you. <laughs> what made you, you know, interested in focusing on, on that topic, making that the central point of your talk? What was your thought process in putting that together? And, and, and you're very knowledgeable about it, obviously, combining mm-hmm. the science with the, with the human elements. So could you tell me a little bit more just about what went into that? The punchline, I'll start with that, is that I really believe that the biggest public health crisis that we have in America today is child abuse. And most of it we don't see, you know, and, uh, and sometimes when we see it, we don't talk about it. But I'm convinced that if you really want to solve sort of the generational cycle of poverty, the most important thing we can be doing is focusing on the health and well-being of very young children. And so I just think of we have any public policy goals that we should be doing that. And you know, the reason for it and why I talked about it in my, in my TED talk when they had asked me to do a presentation because I'm in the housing business, they asked me to talk about homelessness. And so I thought about it for a few days. And at the time we were evicting some people. And I thought, why am I going to speak about homelessness when as the biggest landlord in Portsmouth, who knows, I, we may be evicting more people than anybody else. Are we causing more homelessness um, than we're trying to prevent? I don't think that that's true because we do have a lot of people coming out of homelessness. But when I really thought about it and I thought about any, all these specific cases, there was so much in common with all of them. And when you look at this body of work, you know, and most of the people we house, the, the low income is a temporary condition. They're wonderful families, and, but there's some that are really stuck in this chronic uh, generational cycle of of poverty. And when you look at it closely and when you talk to people and listen to people and hear their stories, so many of them, you can trace their challenges back to what they, what kind of early childhood trauma that they experienced. So there's a whole body of work around this that's been around for, you know, 
30 years when Kaiser Permanente had done a study and come up with something they called adverse childhood experiences. And they actually had indicators, they came up with indicators of what things cause early childhood stress or what I call, call toxic stress based upon certain indicators of a household. That could be um, abuse, neglect, you know, emotional neglect or sexual abuse or parental incarceration, family separation, household uh, drug or alcohol problems. So several different indicators. And if you listen to the stories and you realize that so many of them had multiple indicators of that. And looking at the research, so many of them with multiple indicators, they started school way behind and would never have an opportunity to catch up. One of the biggest you know, consequences of that, and when you experience that kind of early childhood trauma, it actually changes your brain. It changes the chemical nature of the brain in a way that uh, is similar to mercury, um, something like that, and for no fault of the of the child, but they've experienced the sustained uh, the sustained um, toxic stress cycle. One of the one of the big symptoms as an adult that you see is the inability to control your own emotions is very consistent with people who have experienced childhood trauma, um, or the inability what we call executive function, be able to put first things first, is something, an ability you know, to plan a day ahead or to figure out what priorities are, things that are really useful, you know, necessary in life these days. If you've never developed an ability to put first things first, then it's very hard to be successful in housing. You, know, you don't know where to pay the rent or pe people are making um, choices, but a lot of people without the ability to, to prioritize. Um, or if you don't have an ability to control your own emotions, you're a behavior problem early on and even into adulthood. Um, you get into a situation where, you know, everybody has conflict all the time, but if you're the kind of person that can't control their emotions and get angry or commit crimes or whatever, it just leads to this constant cycle. And then they ended up, the, the parents end up creating that same environment for their children and on it goes. So preventing early childhood trauma, um, I am completely convinced that our number one public policy goal that would solve so many other issues that we have and so many and costs that we have to provide safety and support nets and subsidies for people who are really struggling um, would be solved if we put a lot more resources towards things, you know, childhood visits, you know, home visits and home care and uh, expand the use of child care and direct cash subsidies for people just to take the stress uh, out of their lives would be the most important thing that, that we could do. And so that's what I ended up talking about, not homelessness, uh, but the conditions that I found personally in my job created it. Yeah, it made for a very interesting, very interesting talk. It put a great human face on you know, subject matter that sometimes can be difficult for us to grasp. One last thing, you know, you, in your talk, you know, you talked about sort of the invisible, um, you know, the, the invisible young people in our otherwise relative, you know, affluent community here mm -hmm. in Portsmouth and the seacoast. You have some thoughts on what kind of just little things that we as individuals can do to sort of either reach out or help or you know do anything to make mm -hmm. <laughs> make our community a better place for. You know, kids and young people like that who maybe Yeah, that's a really great question, right, to how to turn that into action. Because really at the heart of this ACEs study, this childhood trauma, that the negative effects that childhood trauma could be dramatically minimized only with the presence of one caring adult. 
that sustained stress and the, the chemicals that are associated with sustained stress, that sustained stress can be broken by the presence of just one caring adult. So for the vulnerable kids in our community, there's opportunities all over the place to be that one caring adult. A lot of times that could be a family member. You see it a lot where that's a grandparent. When people get older, they say, you know, if it was, I spent all this time with my grandmother, I really loved her because everything else was chaotic. And that became a safe place for them to be and sort of immunized them against all the other trauma. Could have been a coach, could have been a neighbor. When you talk to people and they often bring up memories of that or a teacher. So especially in a place like Portsmouth with the kind of social capital that we have, you know, the kind of texture we have in our community and that being that caring adult, getting to know these kids go to school along with our kids. And a lot of times we just don't understand and if we don't see them on the sidelines at Little League games or, you know, don't get to know them socially. And, and it is really an invisible population to a lot of people because that's just how it seems to segregate itself. But if you get to know people in your community. And these kids, all these kids are beautiful and innocent when they're born and they're reacting to an environment around them. Start to have problems in school and that kind of stuff. Don't just toss them out. You can be by getting to know and I don't want to say adopting a, a family, but kind of, you know, you can really make uh, enormous long-term change just by caring and just by supporting people and, and taking a edge off. I mean, it's easier said than done. You know, talking about executive function. If you don't know what you're going to eat that night, all the other decisions that you need to make to order to survive in this day and age and just signing kids up for stuff or going to camps or buying insurance or whatever it is, it just never happens when uh, you have an urgency about that. And a friend um, and some support uh, for either the child or the family, something that we can all do. Yeah. And, you know, as much as this is called a business law podcast, you know, the business community is part of the community and a good and a strong and a healthy community. Not only does it start with, you know, our young people you know, just being kind and caring and, and taking that extra moment to look out for the person next door or the person down the street. So. Right. Yeah. I think, you know, one thing I point out and I forget the stat, but the amount of money that and my college and university development friends won't like this, but the amount of money that we all give with our giving dollars towards colleges and universities uh, is in the billions. And I like to point out, if you really want to support education and educational equity, then invest your giving dollars into organizations that provide early child care and early intervention services. Because if you really want you know, to support kids in college. If you don't have these investments early, those kids are never going to get there. They're, yeah. they're never going to, not all of them, you know, where there's a caring adult there that they'll break that cycle. But businesses can certainly make those investments. Yeah. Uh, and I think they're important. Craig, I can't thank you enough for spending some time with me today. It's been terrific. I really enjoyed speaking with you. I love it. I could talk about this stuff a lot. I and, know. I could sit here and listen all day, but I'll yeah. let you get back to it. Yeah. Thank, thank you again. All right. Thanks so much. That's it for today's episode of From the Market Square. I'm Paul Durham, we're she and Finney, and if you like what you heard, please consider subscribing to the podcast, leaving a review, and sharing it with others who might enjoy it. Of course, no podcast produced by lawyers would be complete without a legal disclaimer, so here goes. 
Any views expressed in this podcast do not necessarily reflect the views of She and Finney and should not be construed as legal advice or a solicitation to provide legal services. This podcast is not intended to create, and your listening to it does not constitute an attorney-client relationship. Listeners should not act upon anything expressed without seeking professional legal counsel. Thanks for listening, everybody, and I hope you'll join us again.